So a few years back, the, a family decided that they were going to spend their Easter holiday time in the Holy Land. So they thought there would be nothing better than spend Holy Week, the place where, where Jesus was. And so they wanted to walk where Jesus walked. They wanted to do the things that Jesus did. They, they wanted to truly get a grasp to experience what, what life was like for Jesus in Israel. And so as they were there, tragically, though, on their trip, the mother-in-law died. And so the family was completely in shock by this, completely healthy, didn't really know anything that was going to go wrong. And, and so they're, they're in shock, they're in mourning. So the family stays at the hotel and the, the son-in-law goes to find a funeral director and, and try to figure out like, some, some solutions to what's going to happen here. So he finds a funeral home and he's talking in the funeral director guy. And he, the, the director tells him, okay, you have one of two options. Option one is for a thousand euro, we could do a really nice burial service for her right here. Or for 10,000 euro, we can prepare her body, have her shipped back to the States for, for a time of a funeral there. And without missing a beat, the guy said, we'll, we'll spend the 10,000 euro. And the funeral director, honestly, a little bit lazy. He was like, that's a lot of work to do. It's a lot more money. Like we can do this for, I can do this for 500 euro. Like I won't make anything. It's just enough for us to do this. And, and the guy once again says, no, we want to do the 10,000 euro option. And finally, the funeral home director, he relents. He's like, okay, I understand. Like, you want her to be close to you. You want her to be at, at, near your family. Like, I, I understand that. And the, and the son-in-law says, no, that's, that's not it at all. And, and the funeral director, he's really caught off guard by this. He's like, well, what do you mean? He was like, well, 2,000 years ago, you buried a guy here. And he came back to life. And I can't take that chance with my mother-in-law. <laughs> so happy Easter, everyone. I'm still torn whether I want my mother-in-law to listen to this part or not. Um, so... Resurrection Sunday. I'm glad that you guys are all here. Glad that we get a chance just to worship with each other and be here together. I don't know if you guys are like me, but as you're watching movies and TV shows, does anybody like watching for cameo appearances? Is anybody ever kind of weird like with that? It's like, oh, is, who's going to show up in this thing? Or maybe you'll hear like somebody shows up in this film and you just want to watch it and try to see it. I, I enjoy doing that. So I just started writing down a, a few of them that I know. Um, and Iron Man 2, Elon Musk makes a cameo appearance. I don't know if you guys caught that if you're Iron Man fans. Uh, in the movie uh, Star Trek Beyond, Star Trek Beyond, Jeff Bezos shows up in that movie. You probably can't tell him because he's in makeup and he looks like an alien, but he's there. Um, or, uh, Home Alone 2, former president of the United States, Donald Trump is in that movie. So apparently to be a cameo, you, you just have to be extremely rich. And then you could do basically whatever you want. Uh, anybody a Marvel fan? All right, so Stan Lee, the most common, most popular um, cameo appearances. He, he's in every single Marvel movie from 1989 until 2019. And it's just kind of fun just watching to see where is he going to where is he going to show up? Is he going to be a FedEx driver? Is he going to be a librarian? Is he going to be a bus driver? What is he going to be doing? It's just it's really exciting. It's fun to see those kind of things. And but here's the thing. Like we know like yeah, cameos are fun. They're exciting sometimes, but we know like they're not the point of the movie. We know they're not really the big idea. It's just kind of interesting to see where they pop up, where, what begins to happen with them. We, they're not the main character, but, you know, they're, they're exciting. They're, they're cool. They teach us a little something sometimes, maybe. And there's a lady that we see throughout the gospel who, who kind of does that. She just kind of has these, like, these cameo moments. She'll pop up, and then you won't talk to her, hear from her again, and then she'll pop up again. Her name is Mary Magdalene. 
And we actually don't know a lot about Mary, but the first place that she pops up is in Luke chapter 8. So in Luke 8, she pops up with, with Suzanne and Joanna and many others who are contributing to Jesus's ministry. So she's financially wealthy and she is giving money to Jesus, to his ministry, to help fund him and fund the disciples. So we hear about her in Luke 8, and then we, we don't really hear much more about her until towards the end of Jesus's life. And one of the cool things about Mary, one of the things I love about her story is Mary just continues to pop up in the most difficult and the most painful moments of Jesus's life. So the last three days of Jesus's life, we begin to see, or the last three days where, the last day of Jesus's life, we, we start to see Mary popping up. So we see her at the cross. So if you have your Bible in John chapter 19, John 19, verse 25 Here's what it says. It says, standing near the cross where, where Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clophis, and Mary Magdalene. So here's this Mary. Once again, here she goes. She's popped up. Here's her cameo appearance. That's all that's really said about her here is she is there at the cross. Jesus' most literal worst time of his life, she's there. And if we flip over to, to Matthew 27, we're going we're gonna to find that she is not only there at the cross, She's also at his burial. So Matthew 27, verses 57 through 61, here's what, here's what we find. As evening approached, J Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate issued an order to release him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of a rock, then rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across from the tomb and watching. So, so Mary's there. She's there at, the, she's there at the, the death. She's there at the burial. And these Marys, like, they, they start to watch what's happening. They're seeing what's going on. And during this time, like men and women, they didn't really socialize, especially in public. So when Joseph of Arimathea and when, uh, I'm waking on his name right now, when the other guy, uh, when they go out to, to bury Jesus' body, like they're not going to be there. But they want in the worst way to be able to show Jesus love. So they do the very next thing that they can do is they watch from a distance. They see where Jesus has been buried. And because the next day is the Sabbath, they hurry home so that they can prepare their own ritual so that they can come and give special honor to Jesus. So here she is. She's at Jesus' death. She's at his burial. Mary's also pops up at Jesus' resurrection. Oddly enough, Mary is the only person, only lady, who is put at the tomb of every single gospel account. And we find her in Mark 16, verse 1. Here's what it says. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath had ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, went and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning at sunrise, they went to the tomb. So the most difficult time in, in, in Jesus' life, she's there. Mary is popping up. She's making these cameo appearances, these little moments of time where here she is. Okay, she's there. She's gone. She's there. She's gone. And we see this about Mary. And one thing I love is like with the resurrection, like she goes and she wants to anoint Jesus' body. It's, it's really unnecessary because Joseph of Arimathea has already spent 70, put, brought 75 pounds of ointment to put on Jesus' body, and the body has been dead for two days. There's little that some extra spices are going to do to cover that smell, but it was a way of devotion. 
It was an, an act of love that Mary and these other ladies, they were not going to be denied. And so they were going to go, they were going to do this, and they really hadn't thought through everything yet. They're like, I don't know how we're going to move the stone, but we're going to figure this out when we get there. And here's what I love about Mary, though, is after meeting Jesus, Mary spent the rest of her life honoring and being close to him. This is what we see with Mary. After she meets Jesus, this is what she wants to do. She wants to spend the rest of her life being with him, being near him, showing up in moments of his life. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, right? When we meet Jesus, when we know him, we spend the rest of our lives trying to grow closer to him and spending our lives honoring him. And so the backdrop, I left this out on purpose, but the backdrop of Mary's story it's going to set the stage for everything we're going to talk about today when we talk about the power of the resurrection. So look again at Luke 8, where we first get introduced to Mary, because there's a really significant moment that happens, a little, little minor detail that kind of tells us a little bit about Mary and about her story. So Luke 8, verses 1 and 2, that's what it says. It says, Soon afterwards, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, whom he had cast out seven demons. You guys catch it? It seems so nonchalant, right? Oh, that, that Mary, that he cast out seven demons. It just seems so, so subtle. But as we read through the Bible, like we know demon possession was not subtle. We know demon possession was not nonchalant. And like as we begin to see the story is like, okay, let's think about Mary's story for a minute. Let's just speculate because we don't know how she got these seven demons. Like what, what happens in her life? Just picture for a second what her past must have been like for now Mary having these seven demons. Did, did she mess around with a Ouija board? Does she get this voodoo doll? Does, does she go to Amazon and order a demon? I don't know. This is something that just happened to her, not even something that she did. This is something that just happened to her. What happened for Mary to have these seven demons in her life? We don't know. But as we read through the pages of Scripture, we see what demon possession, what demon possessed people do. We see what the demons do to people. We see a story where they're trying to, trying to kill them throw them in the fire, trying to drown them. We see a story in Mark 5, this guy who's demon-possessed, who's living out in a graveyard naked, and he just, like, he's cutting himself, and he's, like, being able to, to break through, like, chains and stuff because the demon possession is so strong in him. Like, we just see this begin to happen, and, like, as we start to understand Mary's story, we start to think about her past. Like, this must have been what her life was like. I mean, just think about all the people that Mary would have hurt. Her family? Friends, kids, anyone who was around her, herself. Just think about all of these things that must have been going on in Mary. And here comes Jesus and he heals her of these seven demons. He heals her of this. In Mary's life, her past, it must have been an absolute mess. Like no one enjoys being possessed by a demon. No one says, sign me up for that. Mary's life, it would have been an absolute mess. It would have been terrible. Things would, it's not a stretch to say her life would have been hell. But here we find her. She meets Jesus. Jesus cast out these seven demons. And he gives Mary a new life. 
He gives Mary a new direction. He gives her hope. He gives her value. He gives her, maybe for the first time in a long time, she dares to dream again about what her life may have been like. This lady whose past should have disqualified her from everything that she got to be with Jesus, the time that she got to walk with Jesus, getting to be there with Jesus during these most difficult times, like this demon-possessed lady now, she gets to be a witness to the greatest history in humankind, or in human history. And here's the thing, what Jesus did for Mary is what he can do for you. What Jesus did for Mary is what he can do for me, is what he can do for you. Taking our past and remembering it no more. Making things new, giving us a new hope, new dreams, giving us this new reality that we could have to look forward to because our sin is forgiven, our record has been wiped clean. Things have been taken away. Jesus, he gives us He gives us our future back. We've been renewed, restored, resurrected, redeemed. Jesus doesn't just forgive us. He frees us. And we see that with with Mary. She spent her life possessed by these demons, and now her life has been been set free. Her, Her life is different. Everything has changed for her. So how? How can Jesus, what Jesus did for her, how can he do it for us? The resurrection. So let's read through the resurrection story together. John chapter 20. This is where we're going to read this story together. In John 20, we we get the story of the resurrection, and we're going to read through the first 18 verses of of John 20 together. So let's start in, in verse 1. It says this. It says, Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found the stone had been rolled away from its entrance. Now, let's just start right there with with the phrase, while it was still dark. Now, if you're like me, when you read that word, your mind automatically thinks of time of day, right? Like, while it was still dark, not sunny, okay? That's usually what we think, but as we read through this word, Mark or John uses this word 13 times in his gospel, and when he does, it is very rarely about a time of day. So what he's indicating to us is there is this darkness, this spiritual darkness that is going on. This is, what Mar- this is how John uses this word in his gospel. It may have been dark, sure, but there is something so much more that has been going on here. Dark seems to indicate a, a type of uh, condition more than a time frame. It still might be dark where she has to use a torch to get to the, the grave, maybe. But that, compares, that darkness compares to nothing about what she must be experiencing. I mean, just think about it. As Mary walks to the tomb, she sees this empty grave like it is dark because the person who has not held her past against her is dead. The person who first gave her hope and gave her a future, he's gone. The person who did not just see her as someone possessed with seven demons, but saw her as someone with with incredible value and incredible worth, he's, he's dead. And I wonder if like the darkness that is surrounding her is like those dreams and those hopes that are they're gone again. And she thought this was what was supposed to be and the way things were supposed to go. I wonder if she feels like her hopes and her dreams have died with Jesus. Let's keep reading the story because it, it just gets, it gets better from here. So she, she ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And he said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put it. 
Peter and the other disciple started out of the tomb. They both running together, and the other disciple outrun, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Just really side note, it's funny because the disciple that Jesus loved is John, who's writing this. He just wanted to like brag that he's faster than Peter in verse 4. Like He outran him. I don't know why that's important, but he's faster. Uh, so it says he stooped down and, and looked in and saw the linen wrappings laying there, but didn't go in. When Simon Peter arrived and went inside, he also noticed the linen wrappings laying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and laying apart from the other wrappings. So as we see, we, we see in verse 6 and 7, we see the idea of there's, the grave clothes are left. And I think the reason for this is really important. I think it's twofold. First, like, it is, it's very clear that Jesus' body has not been stolen. This is, the, this is what is this, the, the fake news that's been circulated is, is the disciples have come and still stolen Jesus' body. But just think about this. If you were going to steal a body, are you going to unwrap the body and leave the clothes there? If you were going to steal a body that had been rotting for two days, why in the world would you unwrap it, first of all? I don't think we would do that. Like, even too, like, if you think about it, if you're going to steal a body and the guards are all out there waiting to see if you were going to steal the body, are you going to take the time to unwrap the body, to fold up the clothes, leave them there and walk away with the body, this rotting corpse? Are you going to do that? No, that's not what we're going to do. So first thing is like this lie that fake news has circulated that they, the body has been stolen. Like, I think we can see that that's pretty, pretty evident. It's not here. But I think there's something more powerful to this, more than just the, the practicality of this. I think there's a spiritual part of this as well, is all death, remnants of death, signs of death, remains of death, odor of death, all the parts of death are left behind. They're unnecessary. They're unneeded. They are just left sitting there in the grave. And here's, I think, what it says for us is, is Jesus left our shame, our sin, our regret, and our guilt in the empty grave with his grave clothes. When Jesus walks out and he leaves those things, I think it's symbolic of what he's leaving for us. He's leaving behind our guilt, our shame, and our sin. He's leaving it all there. All these things, these parts of death, these things that we had left there. Jesus is walking away from that. They're gone forever. They're not required anymore. Let's keep reading verses 11 through 13. Mary, oh, sorry, let's keep, verse, pick up in verse 8. The other disciple, when he reached the tomb, also went in and saw, and he saw and believed. For until then, he hadn't understood the scripture that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside of the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting, on his, sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been laying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angel asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. I love this question that the, or that the angels asked Mary. Why are you crying? Like maybe like the angels, sure, maybe need a little sensitivity training here. It's like, okay, this guy just died. You were really close to him. Like maybe. But I think for the angels, what they're seeing is like, 
This isn't a moment to mourn. This isn't a moment to cry. This is a moment of victory. This is a moment to celebrate. The angels are like, Mary, why are you crying? Jesus has did the thing that he said all along that he is going to do. There's no reason to cry because this is a moment to celebrate. Jesus has done what he said he was always going to do. Jesus has risen from the dead. And in so he has defeated sin and death once and for all. That opponent who could never be defeated has finally been dealt with, has been defeated. Let's keep reading. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was, the, it was, it was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought she, he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said to him. And she turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which means in Hebrew for teacher. It was finally when Jesus spoke Mary's voice that she recognizes who he is. Like, and I think there's just such power in that. Like, as we think about this idea, it is just when Jesus speaks Mary's name that she's reminded of some things. I, I just assume, like, when Jesus says this, like, there's just this tenderness. There's this love. There's this grace. There's this forgiveness, this freedom in that name that she has spoken, and she is reminded of all of these things. I mean, when someone has changed your life, speaking your name, it reminds you of this. And as the Savior speaks her name, she just replies, Rabbi, teacher. She's reminded of everything that Jesus has done for her. She is reminded of who Jesus is. And it's beautiful. And here's what I want to remind you guys of. Jesus has spoken your name. Jesus has called you by name. And in doing so, when we respond, teacher, when we respond, rabbi, when we respond to him, Lord, we get the grace, the tenderness, the freedom, the forgiveness, the love that accompanies that. He has spoken every single one of your name. Let's keep reading. Verses 17 and 18. Don't cling to me, Jesus says, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. But go and find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave him his message. You guys notice what just happened here? Mary, this lady who was possessed by seven demons previously, this lady who was previously possessed by seven demons, she is the first person to tell the, the gospel story that includes the resurrection of Jesus. You guys see that? In verse 18, this lady whose life was an absolute wreck, an absolute mess, she gets to be the first person to include the resurrection in the story about Jesus. Like, how is that even possible? Like, think of everything that her life must have been like. Think of everything that is going on in her past. When you start looking at her past, when you start looking at her resume, when you start looking at her life, it's like, yeah, you shouldn't be the first one telling people about the resurrection of Jesus. Like, that should be someone else, someone who's a lot more pious, someone who hasn't been possessed by seven demons, someone who's a whole lot more religious than you are. But, but Mary, she gets to be the first one to do this. Here's the truth. Your past doesn't de determine your future. 
Why? Because we have Jesus. Because of Jesus, our past, it does not determine our future. And we see that Mary, she has a new future. She has new hope. She has new dreams. She gets to do these things that she never once would have got to do because she has met Jesus. Your past doesn't matter anymore. It's been nailed to the cross. It's been left in the empty grave with Jesus' grave clothes. So friends, it's time to give up. It's time to give up our shame and our guilt and our sin and just to, to leave it because Jesus has dealt with it already. What Jesus did for Mary, he can do for you. So let me introduce you to a, a lady called Jill, Jill Price. So if you were to pick any date from February 5th, 1980 until today, Jill Price could tell you exactly what happened that day. So she could tell you any major events. She could tell you every person that she talked to. She could tell you every conversation she had. She could tell you what day of the week it was. She could tell you the weather. She could tell you everything. So she has this, this disease or whatever it's called, this condition called hypomysteria syndrome. And so what that is, is it is an automatic autobiographical recall of every single thing that goes on in her life to the age 14. You think about that. She can remember everything that has ever happened, every conversation that has ever happened from the age 14 until till now. She writes a memoir called The Lady Who Can't Forget. And here's what she writes in, her, in that book. She says this, imagine being able to remember every fight you have ever had with a friend, every time someone let you down, all the stupid mistakes you have ever done, the meanest, most harmful things people have ever said to you and those that you have said, then imagine not being able to push them out of your mind no matter how hard you try. Think about that for a second. She later says that she became a prisoner to her own memory. And I think for most of us, most of us, it's not hypermysteria condition. I don't think that's, I don't think it's all of us remembering everything. But I'm willing to bet, for most of us, there's something. There's some sin, there's some guilt, there's some shame that we just can't seem to get past. Like, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we try to push it out, we just can't seem to get past it. Maybe it was something you did, maybe it was something that was done to you, and you've tried so hard, but you just can't seem to get past it. I mean, I'm sure this is where, where Mary, Mary was. I mean, maybe you start just thinking, like, this is what I've done, and they just, these things start to define you. Maybe you think, like, all right, I, I cheated on my taxes. And now, like, I just can't seem to get past that because my entire life, just, I just feel like that's, that's who I am as a cheater. Maybe there was an addiction problem for a long time, and you've been able to get over it, but now you just feel to yourself, like, all I am is an addict. This is who, what defines me. This is who I am. And maybe these things just continue to, to bubble up. These things start to be in your mind. It's like, this is who I am. Can I just remind you? You are not what you have done. Jesus doesn't look at Mary and say, hey, you are possessed by seven demons. Jesus doesn't bring this up anymore. We find a beautiful, beautiful statement in, in Romans 8, verse 1. Romans 8, um, maybe the greatest chapter in the Bible, for if I was going to, to choose one, it would be Romans 8. But Romans 8, verse 1, it says this, it says, So now, 
there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Listen, listen again. Just soak this in, take this in. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I think that word now is important. There, there was, but not anymore. Because we have, we have Jesus. Because of the resurrection, there may have been condemnation at one point, but now, because of what Jesus has done, if we have accepted Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The devil can do absolutely nothing about the fact that Jesus can forgive sin. All he can do is accuse you with lies. So if you're a follower of Jesus, that, that moment, those, that guilt that keeps coming up and you think, maybe I am a cheater, maybe I am an adulterer, maybe all I am is a liar, maybe all I am is an addict, those, th- that, you know what that is? It's lies. Because the devil can do absolutely nothing about the fact that Jesus can forgive sin. Just a moment of authenticity here. I've been stuck here multiple times in my life. These moments where, where I, I believe with everything in me, it's like, okay, God can forgive other people. I, I know that. I'm convinced of that. And sometimes I start to question, well, can he actually do that for me? Would he do that for me? And you know what that is? It's a lie. Because the devil can do nothing about the fact that Jesus can forgive sin. But he can continue to accuse us with lies. So every night, the last couple of weeks before Ava goes to bed, I I tell her a little story. um, And then before I finish our nightly routine, as I've been praying through the sermon and preparing for this, like I I read to her Romans 8, 39, which we read together. I I just simply tell her this passage that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from Christ's love. And then I sing to her, one thing remains, your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Because the reality is, that is the last thing that I want my daughter thinking about before she goes to bed. I want her remembering, I want her knowing that there is nothing that can separate her from Christ's love. And I'll be real honest, it's, it's not just for Ava's sake. It's for my sake as well, because it's what I need to be reminded of time and time again, that nothing in all of creation can separate us from Christ's love. Friends, one of the greatest lies that we can believe is thinking that somehow God is against us. We, we read this passage, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? The fact that God sent his son, that Jesus volunteers to come into the world to die for us, to raise himself for the, from the dead, it shows that, that he is, that he's for us. This is one of the greatest lies we can believe. So back in 2013, I read a story about a guy called Cornelius Anderson. And, and Cornelius Anderson, he, he got arrested and tried for, for a pretty serious crime. And, and so after he was, he was convicted, he was sitting in the, the courtroom and the, the judge told him, all right, go home, don't leave your house, and they're going to show up and, and they'll take you to prison. And so he goes home and the people never come. And so as this time just continues to go on, like Cornelius, he gets married. He has three kids. He learns carpentry. He starts his own business. He pays his taxes. Like he gets a driver's license. And this goes on for 13 years until in July, 2013, the the government realizes their oversight 
and they send a SWAT team with fully automatic weapons to the house of Cornelius and his family. They take him and they bring him into prison. And when his attorney, when his lawyer was, was interviewed for this, for this story, here's what he says. He said this. He said, I told him that one day they were going to come for him and that he needed to be ready. And I wonder if that's what we feel sometimes is we just have this feeling that we know our sins, we know what we've done in the past, we know these things that have been going on, and we just know one day the doorbell's going to ring, one day there's going to be a knock on the door, and, and it's going to be time to pay. But here's the reality. The grave is empty. Sin has been dealt with. Your guilt, your shame, your regret, all of these things that you feel, they've been left behind in the empty grave. And the resurrection of Jesus is not just something that happened. It is something that continues to happen as well. Like because of, because of Jesus' families can be resurrected. Because of Jesus' dreams and hopes and, and lives and futures can be resurrected because of what Jesus has done for us. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to get ready to have a time of communion. A time where we can celebrate what Jesus has done for us. A time where we can celebrate that our sin has been dealt with once and for all, that our guilt, our regret, and all of these things have been, have been taken care of. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for today.